Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require any assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training, Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dietmar, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Cervical Cancer Treatment Advances. And today's program is uh, supported by Regeneron, Sanofi Genzyme, Segan, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have on the program today over 203 participants, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants today from Canada, Nigeria, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And um, it's a pleasure to have all of you on the call today, um, and um, you clearly are a group of information seekers. And before I introduce our first speaker, I would just like to ask you a few questions um, to start. And those of you who are live streaming the program will be able to see the questions. And the purpose of the questions is to get a sense of what you know coming into the program. And indeed, um, it will help us as we plan all of our programs in 2022. So we've been doing this for all of our programs. So um, for those of you, again, who are live streaming, and I'll start with the first question. On a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand cervical cancer, including diagnosing and staging in the context of COVID-19 and its variants. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the treatments for cervical cancer, including surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, targeted treatments, immunotherapy, combination treatments, sequencing of treatments, and new and emerging treatment approaches. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand how precision medicine and testing, biomarkers, and diagnostic technologies inform cervical cancer treatment decisions. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. I understand how to prevent and manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now the last question, understand the role of clinical trials in the treatment of cervical cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank all of you for addressing these questions and answering them. It really helps us enormously as we move forward. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Carolyn Runowitz. Dr. Runowitz is Executive Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Florida International University, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine. And Dr. Runowitz will be addressing an overview of cervical cancer, including diagnosing and staging in the context of COVID-19 and its variants. She'll also be presenting on stages of cervical cancer, how precision medicine and testing inform treatment decisions, communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns, and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Runowitz. Thank you, and thank you for including me in this teleconference and workshop. I'm honored to share time with all of you and with my esteemed colleagues. So cancer of the uterine cervix at the tip of the womb is the third most common gynecologic cancer. Human papillomavirus is central to the development of cervical neoplasia and can be detected in almost 100% of all cervical cancers. The most common histologic types, and Dr. Kerr will be going into this in more detail, are squamous cell accounting for about 70%, and then the remainder, adenocarcinomas, and then some rare cancers. The incidence of invasive cervical cancer and its variants has increased dramatically over the past few decades, particularly in younger patients. And 
there's a difference between cervical adenocarcinoma and cervical squamous carcinoma. Squamous is decreasing and adenocarcinoma has increased. Both, we believe, are HPV-related. The diagnosis of cervical cancer is made by histologic examination of a cervical biopsy. The pathologist is essential in this evaluation. And Dr. Kerr will provide additional details and information um, about how the pathologist makes the diagnosis. For staging, and this is important for figuring out what kind of treatment you will be offered, in resource-limited settings, and I did hear some sites that are on the call that are probably uh, classified as resource-limited settings, staging is purely clinical and based on physical exam and a limited number of endoscopic diagnostic procedures, such as an exam under anesthesia, a proctoscopy, a cystoscopy, and more rarely, a hysteroscopy. And very basic imaging studies, a chest x-ray, and if still being done, an IVP. I think in the United States, this has been completely replaced by CAT scans. So in a resource abundant setting, like most of the United States, staging may additionally be based on an expanded list of imaging studies which include CT, MRI, and PET scanning, and of course, the pathologic findings. So the initial um, treatments are based on the stage of the disease. And the stages we just spoken about is really a, a clinical, but not a surgical stage. So surgery is offered for early stage disease. And that stage is 1A, 1B, um, 1B2, but less than 4 centimeters. And the surgery is a radical hysterectomy and lymph node dissection performed by a gynecologic oncologist who is a physician specially trained in these surgical procedures. Radiation therapy is an alternative option. If one lives in an, in an area where there are few or, or no uh, GYN oncologists, then radiation therapy might be the uh, option that is offered. And it also depends on the medical condition of the patient. Can the patient withstand radical surgery or is radiation a better option? In an intermediate risk, that is with a larger tumor, um, chemoradiation with a platinum-based regimen is usually offered. Some advocate for first surgery, that would be a radical hysterectomy, followed by chemotherapy and radiation. In high risk, chemoradiation is usually offered, and it is done, the chemotherapy is done throughout the radiation, but it's not continued. Initially, these initial studies thought that if it was continued beyond the radiation, there would be an improved result, but this has not been shown to be true. After one goes through the radiation or the surgery um, or the chemotherapy, then one is followed uh, with physical examinations, imaging as indicated, and if there are any abnormal lesions or masses, a biopsy either directly or through um, radio radiographic direction may be performed. The quality of life, given the radicality of the surgery and the radiation, um, is very important to review with your healthcare team. So you may go through premature menopause if you are under the age of 50, and you may have sexual dysfunctions, painful intercourse, bleeding on intercourse. And these are things that you really want to communicate with your healthcare team. If the disease comes back, it's called recurrent disease, and it can be local um, with symptoms of bleeding or discharge, or it can have spread beyond the pelvis and will be either asymptomatic or variable depending on the site of metastases. For local recurrent disease, the treatments may be radiation or surgery. A consultation, again, with a gynecologic oncologist and a radiation oncologist is very important. If the disease comes back as metastatic, that is, it's outside of the pelvis, um, 
then there are some new therapies, and Dr. Einstein will present the role of these new therapies, bevacizumab, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and some other new and novel uh, therapies. And it's very important, in my opinion, at this point, to discuss with your healthcare provider enrollment in a clinical trial where you might be offered some of the newer novel therapies. And then lastly, telemedicine. Um, telemedicine during COVID emerged as a real option. And it, it's going to continue. We're not putting that genie back in the bottle. Um, so telemedicine may be an important part of your follow-up. And so if you are asymptomatic, and you want to speak with your doctors or your healthcare providers, you can schedule a telemedicine appointment. You want to prepare questions ahead of the call. And if possible, you want to have somebody with you because oftentimes when you're given a lot of information, it's information overload, and you really can't um, synthesize all of that information. And so having somebody there to say, no, no, that's not what I heard. Um, is very helpful. Um, so I, that really concludes the introduction to cervical cancer um, and the end of my presentation. And I believe that Dr. Einstein will be next. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ronowitz. That was an outstanding uh, presentation and actually set the, a wonderful stage for today's program and going over important information for people to have. So I, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, and our Next speaker is Dr. Mark Einstein. Dr. Einstein is professor and chair of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive health, Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. And Dr. Einstein will be addressing treatment choices for cervical cancer, including surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, targeted treatments, and immunotherapy. Also combination treatments, sequencing treatments, and new and emerging treatment approaches. He'll also be addressing clinical trials, and preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up appointments, and discussion of open notes. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Einstein. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Messner, and thank, uh, I thank the organizers of this uh, Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop for the opportunity to speak with all of you, and I thank you all for being here because clearly you are you are interested and invested in trying to solve this cancer problem that all of us are touched with on a daily day-to-day -day basis. Um, some of this talk I want to sort of build on some of the aspects that Dr. Runowitz has already uh, elegantly presented um, from a, a broader standpoint and really get into some of the specifics about how things have really changed in some of the treatment choices for cervical cancer. Um, first and foremost, you know, let's, I'm going to start with the early cervical cancer. So um, we usually pick up cervical cancer in developed areas of the world early, and which is a good thing because a lot of times surgery is all we need. We have learned, however, um, in our transitions for going from open, big, open procedures to minimally invasive procedures that we have to look back at some of that and actually see whether or not it actually helps or changes the outcome. Recently, we we really did make that switch over the last 10 years to what we would consider minimally invasive surgery. So instead of big incisions that can cause more pain and potentially can have people stay in the hospital for a few days, we, we were using laparoscopic approaches and robotic approaches. But on recent look at all that, what we have identified is that actually those minimally invasive approaches actually worsen survival. Um, and so there has been a big trend to going back to sort of that open procedure for surgery. And while we recognize that in the short term, it might lead to some increase and in maybe some pain, maybe a little bit longer stay in the hospital, we also know in the long term that improves survival. This has been one of the big recent changes that we've had where we're sort of the old school way applies to the new school way. Um, Dr. Runowitz had mentioned about for locally advanced cervical cancer where it's potentially gotten out of the cervix and um, we choose radiation as an option. 
what we have learned over over decades, and Dr. Ronowitz was involved in some of the initial trials, where we combine a, a little bit of chemotherapy, and, and not we're talking like complete or full doses of the kind of chemotherapy that we would use um, in a recurrent or in a metastatic setting, but like a touch of chemotherapy. And what it does is it drives cells into a form that makes them a lot more radio sensitive. Okay, and it's not just one plus one equals two. I mean, it's one plus one equals four when it comes to the added synergy of a little touch of chemotherapy with that radiation. There's been great advances in radiotherapy over the last two decades. Um, historically, at the beginning of my career, we, we were using some of the standard, um, shall I say, bigger doses that wasn't as targeted. Now, um, radiotherapy has really come of age in a, in a highly technologic fashion. We're using CT-guided, what we call treatment planning, where we're really focusing on just the areas where there, there are cancer. So it's much more targeted therapy. Why is that beneficial to our patients? Why is that beneficial to you or your family members? Well, it's beneficial because it minimizes the toxicity. In addition to that, we're using something called intensity modulated radiation therapy. This has been one of the big changes in minimizing toxicity while we're continuing to, to be able to effectively treat the active tumor. Um, and then the little touch of chemotherapy, not all chemotherapy is the same. So it's important to recognize that this is just really to make the radiation better, but radiation is the primary therapy for the, the bulky tumors that are outside of the cervix. Um, when this, the, the tumor has spread, either locally or spread uh, maybe to other parts of the body, that's when things have gotten um, uh, difficult when it comes to treatment. And so there's been a lot of clinical trials focused on what we would consider to be either recurrent or metastatic cervical cancer. Dr. Ronowitz had mentioned what was a really big clinical trial that uh, sort of changed some of the paradigm of how we treat recurrent and metastatic cervical cancer using a drug that has been FDA approved for other cancers like breast cancer, like colon cancer, like lung cancer, something called Avastin or Bevacizumab, where um, by adding bevacizumab to a standard regimen that we have used in, in this state, we actually improved survival by about 30%. This was such an, an, an amazing improvement that, um, that bevacizumab got, got fast-tracked by the FDA for approval for the treatment of recurrent cervical cancer. Uh, many of you have heard about something called immunotherapies, and, and, and immunotherapies have been now used since 2014, starting in things like melanoma, um, used in things like lung cancer and, and other types of cancer. It's really just started to, to go into clinical trials in about 2017 or 2018. Why would immunotherapy be effective for this kind of cancer? Well, first of all, this cancer, as Dr. Ronaldson had mentioned, is an HPV-associated cancer. This is a ubiquitous virus. Almost everyone's been exposed to this virus at some point in time in their lives. But by being this, this HPV it sort of causes this big inflammatory response. And that, that response evades the typical immune responses that a patient might have. Um, and, what, and also, some of the HPV-transformed cells can actually change the environment to favor its survival. So anything we can do to modify that tumor environment to improve how chemotherapy works would work very well. And immunotherapy is that sort of thing. Okay, and over the last couple of years, we've had some very big trials that have shown that specific immunotherapies actually help, and adding specific immunotherapies in the metastatic and the recurrent setting actually considerably improved trials. Um, a, a few of them have actually been uh, FDA approved for cervical cancer use, and it's, it works so well in the recurrent metastatic setting. We are now doing clinical trials to see if maybe we should be doing it right after radiation for high-risk individuals. And we, we've done now a few very large trials using at least one of the immunotherapies that are available where we added after chemotherapy and radiation therapy, we added maybe we could actually see if this actually improves survival with the thinking of like, let's not wait till this comes back. Let's try to throw the kitchen sink at this early on so we could actually try to stop it before it becomes recurrent or metastatic. Any of these these chemotherapies do have their set of side effects, and, 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 and a lot of this is self-limiting, 
a lot of this will, will improve. And it's really important to follow sort of the doctor's instructions and your care team's instructions with how we deal with some of the side effects. We know that the combinations of three different chemotherapies often that we use in the recurrent setting, I mean, that could lead to some pretty tough days, okay? And it's really important that you as an individual really keep up with things like the nutrition that I know one of our speakers, Dr. Bearden, will be talking about, as well as um, keeping up with really your calories and keeping up with your overall wellness to help with some of those treatment side effects. And listen to your body for some of those symptoms. And if you're worried about something, to really talk to your care provider about this. When it comes to some of the telemedicine appointments, and we know that telemedicine is here to stay, as Dr. Wanowitz had mentioned, <clears throat> some of the things that we have to do, we unfortunately can't do over telemedicine is wrong in the pelvis, if something is, is feeling not right, it's important to see your doctor. And some of this is time sensitive, especially if, if an individual a patient is on an immunotherapy or something where if we don't act quickly on some of these um, abnormal findings that, um, you know, it could lead to and escalate into problems. And, uh, you know, the, the most important thing is we want to make sure that people are surrounded by their care team. That includes their family. That includes their friends. That means being at home. Okay, and as much and as happy as I am, it's more important to make sure that I keep them at home, okay, and make sure that they're safe at home and they don't have to come in for any of these side effects. So really we can manage a lot of this as an outpatient. Um, I, I've been asked to talk a little bit about open notes, and I know that some of you have, have learned through your various enrollments when you see your provider or you're, you get touched by a hospital system that it asks you to sort of log in if you want to check your results. You know, this is a law. That, um, that happened you know, relatively recently, and a lot of hospitals have changed the way they expose their, their notes. And I really, really welcome, and I love the fact where my patients are actively involved in looking at their labs and checking on, on things. I think it's important not to sometimes overreact when you see something that might be in a report, um, but to maybe you know, reach out to your provider, and a, a lot of times you could do that through um, the messaging system that the hospital provides. A lot of times you could do that through like their, their call team number through like either a navigator type of individual or their assistant that, that a lot of providers have. And it's really important that, that you, you don't get too anxious about some of the results. Like things like radiology or CAT scan results can sometimes be troublesome when you actually do the actual read. And when actually this is the kind of thing we expect, that doesn't mean that there's any disease there. Like if we see enlarged nodes or something like that, that doesn't mean necessarily that there's recurrence or anything like that. That could be just the way, you know, the patient is. That could be just like sort of the baseline. So it's really important to frame this in the right perspective and, and, and certainly not overact, but ask the questions, all right? Have that open dialogue with your patient. You're part of your care. Your wellness and understanding of what's going on with your care is really important to us as well as important to you. Um, and with that, I, I want to turn it over to our, uh, back to our moderator. Thank you very much for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Einstein. That was really incredibly informative and a lot of wonderful information for our participants. Um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Excellent. Stand, outstanding. And our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr. Dr. Kerr is a pathologist, Hospital Pathology Associates, Division of Cytopathology, Gynecologic and Molecular Pathology. Alina Health Laboratories, Alina Health Cancer Institute. And Dr. Kerr will be addressing the role of the pathologist, biomarkers and diagnostic technologies, and understanding your pathology report. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you today. It is my great pleasure to introduce you all to the role of pathology in the care of patients with cervical cancer. So first I want to define pathology and what a pathologist does. I think of pathology as all of the behind-the-scenes work that occurs in the clinical laboratory in the practice of medical care. So with cervical cancer, a pathologist is the doctor involved in reading pap smears, overseeing HPV testing, diagnosing cervical biopsies and metastatic disease, and uh, evaluating LEAP specimens or loop electrical surgical procedure specimens, cones or uh, hysterectomy specimens. Uh, pathology has a laboratory team that helps process these specimens and evaluate all of these types of specimens for cervical cancer screening or to make a diagnosis. 
So next I'll talk in more detail about how those pap smears, biopsy, and surgical specimens get from a patient to a pathologist for the various tests that are needed for diagnosis and choosing the best therapy. So for cervical cancer, patients will sometimes have an abnormal cancer screening pap smear, which is obtained by brushing or scraping the cervix to look for cancer cells or precancer cells under a microscope. And often, HPV testing is performed as part of that screening. Other patients may present with bleeding from the vagina caused by the cancer or have something abnormal seen during a routine pelvic exam. And so once the cancer is suspected, uh, the patient will usually have an examination for a biopsy or a leap uh, or a cone procedure to make a definitive diagnosis and measure, uh, importantly, if the tumor has invaded the underlying stroma um, or how, and measure how deep the tumor has invaded the cervix if it is invasive. And only a pathologist can really tell for sure the diagnosis by looking at these cells under a microscope. And so for small tumors, the pathologist also um, makes the most accurate measurement under a microscope of the extent of invasion into the cervix, which is important for determining the next steps in treatment, which the other doctors on this call have, have explained. Um, part of this evaluation by the pathologist is, term, is determining the tumor type. So cervical cancer is generally divided into human papillomavirus-associated cancers, which is really the overwhelming majority of cervical cancers, and then rare types of cervical cancer that are not associated with HPV. Um, and then if you think about HPV-associated cancers, HPV-related cancers come in a variety of types, including the most common, which is squamous cell carcinoma, uh, adenocarcinoma, which is actually increasing in prevalence among HPV-related cancers, uh, adenosquamous carcinoma, which is a mixture of those types, and then a, a very rare type of uh, HPV-related cancer called small cell carcinoma. So with the exception, though, of small cell carcinoma, most types of cervical cancer are treated in the same way. Uh, so unlike some other types of um, cancer at other sites, the distinction of these different histologic subtypes might not be critically important. Um, I wanted to mention, in case anyone on this call uh, might be affected, that there is um, a non-HPV-related type of cervical cancer um, called as um, gastric-type cervical cancer, or sometimes called adenoma malignum, uh, which rarely can be associated with a familial syndrome known as Putz-Jaeger syndrome. Um, so there are some types of cervical cancers not associated with HPV that also might have other implications, such as um, her hereditary um, implications for family members. Uh, so the pathologist makes the distinction um, also between cervical cancer and endometrial cancer. Um, and, and this is because cervical cancer and endometrial cancer are both in the uterus very close to one another, and they can be confused for one another. So one of the important things that a pathologist does is makes the distinction between cervical cancer and endometrial cancer, which is very important for determining the next steps in treatment. <clears throat> so this process of making a pathology diagnosis usually takes a few days, but can take longer depending on if the tumor is of an unusual or rare type where more than one pathologist or extra tests are needed to help make the correct diagnosis. The diagnosis is issued in a document called a pathology report, which will be available for you in your medical record or in your open notes if you go into an online portal um, to go over with your cancer team. Pathologists use you know, very technical medical language in these reports to communicate the findings to the doctors. Um, so it may be difficult to understand, and it's, it's very important to look at this report and ask, ask questions about it uh, with your cancer te care team. Also make sure that you have a copy of this pathology report going forward, especially if you move between healthcare systems. Um, this will ensure that your pathologists in, you know, in different healthcare systems and other cancer team members are aware of the details of your history when looking at any subsequent pathology specimens or other clinical findings. Um, so next I'll move on and talk a little bit about biomarkers. 
and molecular testing in cervical cancer. The most common test that is ordered for cervical cancer patients to help choose therapy is called PDL1. And Dr. Einstein mentioned immunotherapy. PDL1 uh, is basically a, a protein that's used by a tumor such as cervical cancer to hide from the patient's immune system. So the immune system is a natural mechanism that the body uses to try to fight off cancer cells. And there are drugs called immune checkpoint inhibitors or immunotherapy that block the tumor from using this protein called PDL1 to hide so that the body can fight off the tumor like it would an infection. The PDL1 test looks for this PDL1 protein by looking at tissue sections under a microscope. And there's a stain that we apply to the tissue uh, for PDL1 that is interpreted by a pathologist under a microscope and is assigned what is called a combined positive score, which takes into account the immune cells and tumor cells that have that PDL1 protein. And then after looking at it under a microscope, the pathologist generates a report for PDL1 with that combined positive score, or CPS. Um, the immunotherapy cutoff for treatment using this test is a combined positive score of one, and you know, scores higher than that may be even better. Um, other tests uh, are sometimes used uh, if PDL1 is negative in the tumor. Um, some of these things are called uh, tests such as tumor mutation burden mismatch repair enzyme testing, and microsatellite instability. These are all tests that provide information about whether the tumor is likely to be recognized by the immune system with some help from immune checkpoint inhibitor drugs. And you know, there are tumors because of this human papillomavirus um, driving the tumor that may be recognized by the immune system even without any of these tests indicating um, that, that the tumor is likely to respond. So, there are basically a number of factors your doctor will consider when determining if immunotherapy is likely to help you. And then I'll just briefly mention that there are some other molecular tests that can be used in cervical cancer patients. Um, these tests are um, broad next-generation sequencing panels that are usually used for patients who have progressive or persistent disease after the first-line standard treatments. So for cervical cancer and next-generation sequencing, we're often looking for a needle in a haystack since there really are not as many approved targeted treatments for cervical cancer as there are for other tumors like lung cancer. So sometimes these tests do find genetic changes in the DNA sequence of the cancer that could match well with a treatment that is available for a different cancer type or that is part of a clinical trial. So ask your doctor about this type of testing if you are in the situation of still having cancer progress after the standard treatments that the other doctors have talked about on this call. Okay, so that's all I have for today. Thanks so much for listening to me talk about pathology, and I'm turning the conference back over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was really uh, remarkable, just wonderful. I have to say Dr. Kerr is really, um, she was really the first, and probably we only have two pathologists on our programs, and um, she is ideal for some of the programs, this one in particular, and a number of others, but without her, um, we wouldn't be able to have a voice of a pathologist. It's really not easy to find a pathologist um, quite like her, so um, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And um, our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden, and Ms. Bearden is oncology dietitian. Um, I'm Michael Edebeke, VA Medical Center. And Ms. Bearden will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips for people um, living with cervical cancer. Ms. Bearden, my pleasure to, to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Um, nutrition and hydration are essential not only in the tolerance to your treatment, but providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy and have the quality of life that you're um, wanting to have. Your diet might be modified um, during or even after your cancer treatment, mainly to assist with managing um, any side effects that you experience <clears throat> and to help ensure that your nutritional status um, is still in good standing. 
So some of the potential side effects you might experience, and everyone's different, so um, you know these are just some that, that you may experience going through treatment, but maybe poor appetite, you might experience nausea, vomiting, even a sore mouth or a sore throat, diarrhea and possibly fatigue. Um, each person's individual, so um, it's so important, we've already heard today in today's presentation about communicating with your healthcare team. And it truly is incredibly important to let your team know sooner rather than later. Um, we're here to support you, and we know some of the things that you might be going through, but each person, again, is an individual, and so we don't know unless you communicate with us. So please do that sooner than later. But during your course of treatment, your nutritional needs can change just depending on the treatment that you receive, um, your individual needs, and, and other challenges that you might be going through. And so um, a dietitian is part of the healthcare team. You can ask to speak with a dietitian. Um, they'll be happy to sit down with you, kind of go through um, your unique needs, work up any calorie, protein, fluid need recommendations, or even some diet modifications if that's appropriate. So one thing that I get a lot with with patients is, um, they feel like, oh, I, I have some, some weight to lose. I'm not that worried about losing a little bit of weight. And um, in any other situation, it probably wouldn't be so much of a concern. But when you're going through cancer treatment, it's very important that um, – that you know where you need to be during your treatment and what your needs are. So even if you're overweight, you can become malnourished. People don't realize that, but it can happen. And um, one of the reasons why is when your nutritional needs are not met, oftentimes the body uses protein, your muscle, for energy. And what happens when we start losing our muscle is there is increased risk of falling. You might be fatigued more. Um, you may not be able to do some of the things that you really enjoy doing and having the level of independence potentially just depending on your unique situation. So, you know, it's so important that you that you talk with your team, that you know what you need to be doing during your treatment. And sometimes even delays can happen in treatment just based on nutritional status. So it's, it's really so important. Now, there are medications to assist with side effects. And um, if you tell your healthcare team what you're going through, they can definitely um, react to that and get you something sooner um, in the process rather than later when things sometimes get a little bit more intense. And so keeping a record oftentimes of what you're eating, if you're having some problems after meals or during a meal, can help us better pinpoint what, what we can recommend for you to help you be more comfortable and support your um, nutrition goals. But maintaining your hydration is also a part of this. It isn't just about calories and protein, but the hydration is so important. And some of the side effects that I mentioned, one of them being diarrhea, is, um, is possible. And when you have diarrhea, you lose fluid, you lose electrolytes. And so maintaining your hydration is, is also part of this equation. Um, a general recommendation is each person needs about 8 to 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid per day. And fluid is anything like water, milk, even sports drinks, juice, um, and some treatments can require that your fluid needs go up. So again, talking with your healthcare team will help you understand your unique needs. In closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to you and making sure that your journey is successful and we can help manage any side effects that you're going through. So please reach out to them sooner rather than later. Uh, thanks a lot for me uh, for allowing me to be part of today's presentation, and I'm going to pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. Um, excellent presentation, um, wonderful information, and I know there will be questions for you, or there always are, <laughs> during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And um, I'm just going to say a few words um, about Cancer Care Services for all of you on the call. Um, and um, so... First of all, Cancer Care offers a number of free programs and services um, that you can access from Cancer Care. And they're primarily provided um, through our oncology social workers. We have about 35 on staff, um, e either by calling our HOPE line or by visiting our website. And so what, is, what are the services we offer? So if you call our HOPE line or if you visit our website, you will be connected immediately to one of our oncology social workers. And most of the time when people call, they have a question or concern, and then we address that and also let them know about all the other services that we offer so people um, are aware of the host of services. 
So we do offer support to people, really a chance to talk with someone about your concerns and then to help with get some solutions to them. Um, we also um, offer uh, financial and uh, copay assistance, and um, that's and practical assistance, and that's really important. It's always been important in our 75-year history, but it's particularly important now during COVID. I think people are feeling much more stretched in terms of finances, practical issues, and also needing help with um, their um, the cost of their treatments. A copay um, gives very large grants to help with the cost of chemotherapy. And if for some reason we don't have what you need, our staff will connect you um, to serve to um, other copay assistance programs, and also um, some of the uh, pharmaceutical also have farmers have actually um, they do have copay assistance programs as well. Um, so just to be aware that there's a lot of and your and your healthcare team also may be able to um, alert you to that as well. Um, in addition, um, we also offer online support groups. There's people like a lot. Online support group is a chance for you to connect with other people online. Um, and um, the groups are both specifically about a particular type of cancer, like cervical cancer, all the different cancers that exist. And we also have groups specifically for people who are older adults, younger adults, middle-aged adults, caregivers. So different types of groups, and there's um, we have so many groups to choose from, and our oncology social workers would help you to find the fit that works for you if that was something you're interested in. The nice thing about on, uh, the online support groups is they're not at a specific time of day. They actually um, they're um, you you can post any time of the day or night, um, depending on where you are um, in the United States, and you also can. Our oncology social workers are moderating these groups, um, usually during um, business hours Eastern time, but nevertheless, so there is that professional person moderating um, the, the groups and, and looking to be sure everything is going smoothly. Um, in addition to that, we also do offer these workshops, about 75 of them per year on a lot of different types of topics. Um, we just um, posted all of our upcoming programs for you to see. So I certainly recommend that you take a look at them. You'll be getting a listing of those programs, and we're constantly planning new programs as well. And we also have a, um, a, a larger number of publications that you can access or fact sheets from our website. And so now, um, before we move on to um, your asking questions of our speakers, I'm just going to ask you just a few questions before we do that um, so that we can actually um, get a sense of what your experience has been during the program today. And there's just five questions. It takes about two minutes. And for those of you who are live streaming, we'll be able to address these questions. And you'll hear me read the questions, but you'll be able to rate them as well. So the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of cervical cancer, including diagnosing and staging in the context of COVID-19 and experience. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the treatment options for cervical cancer, including surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, targeted treatments, immunotherapy, combination treatments, sequencing of treatments, and new and emerging treatment approaches. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how precision medicine and testing, biomarkers, and diagnostic technologies inform cervical cancer treatment decisions. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of working with the healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to prevent and manage treatment side effects symptoms, discomfort, and pain. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of participating in clinical trials for cervical cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank everyone for participating in these questions. It really will help us as we plan programs going forward um, to, to better meet your needs. And now, we have time for questions, and I'm going to ask um, 
Tamara to explain to you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Oh, excellent. Thank you. And um, first question from one of our online participants is, um, and this will be for Dr. Runnerwitz, does having HPV mean I will have cervical cancer? No. Um, actually, um, most women will clear HPV, uh, human papillomavirus, it's picked up at the time to save your pap smear um, or pelvic examination. And the majority of women will clear that. So having HPV does not necessarily mean that you're going to get cervical cancer. Thank you. Um, and then um, the next question for Dr. Einstein, at what age should you be getting PAP tests? That's a, that's a great question and somewhat of a <laughs> relatively recent moving target. Uh, because we have, um, we're, we're sort of changing the way we do screening in some ways. Um, there's a number of big organizations that have come out with talking a little bit differently about how we do um, screening. Um, PAP tests have long been uh, sort of the mainstay, and PAP tests have really, really helped to decrease the chance of cervical cancer in the United States and in much of the rest of the world where there's organized screening programs. But we also know that HPV testing is very sensitive, and it not only tells us what's going on now, but it tells us what's going on in the future. And so the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, the American Cancer Society, have actually recommended that we shift screening to just doing an HPV test initially. Um, uh, because that actually helps define some of that risk. Now, that's a transition, and I think a lot of clinicians are just starting to adopt uh, some of that. It also changes, and we could let our pathologists uh, comment about this, but it also changes the lab workflow as well. So there's a lot that goes into changing how we do things. It also changes sort of how we think about screening. So, so but anyways, uh, the, the short answer of your question is right now, if, if testing is done with cytology traditionally, we start at age 21, definitely not before the age of 21. And over the age of 30, not only do we do HPV test, but we do co-testing as well. Uh, but again, doing primary HPV testing also is a very efficient way of identifying active and potentially future risk of disease. Excellent. Thank you so much. And Dr. Kerr, do you want to add to this? Oh, sure. Yeah, this has really evolved over the course of my career in terms of how many women are getting pap tests. So, you know, early in my career, we were doing uh, annual pap tests. So women went in every year, got their pap test, and, you know, those cells were looked at by a cytotechnologist and, and, and a pathologist and signed out. And then, you know, with the advent of HPV testing, that really started to shift. So um, even to the extreme of using HPV only without looking at the cells under a microscope. And I think now we've really got sort of a hybrid model where, you know, some centers are using HPV only and, and some centers are using some sort of combination of PAP with reflex HPV testing depending on what's seen under the microscope or HPV with reflex PAP testing. Um, so it's important to talk with, you know, your usually your primary care physician or your gynecologist in terms of what, you know, what's the most important um, or what's the appropriate screening test for you. And then, you know, for cervical cancer patients who have been detected to have small tumors that have been excised, then those patients go down a different pathway where it's not really so much screening as as observation over time to um, see if a small precancer cancer recurs. And so th we also use PAP tests as part of that surveillance as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and um, a question for Dr. Um, Runowitz, can you go over staging again? Um, sure. Uh, so staging is a clinical staging. Um, the, an exam is done, um, a pelvic rectal exam is done to feel the cervix to see if the disease has spread beyond the cervix. Um, and then uh, in limited resource settings, the uh, additional testing might be an exam under anesthesia, 
um, a sigmoidoscopy or a proctoscopy, a cystoscopy, um, and then basic imaging studies like a chest X-ray and in some countries still an IVP, although in this country, in the U.S., it would be a CAT scan with dye would give you the same information. In the U.S., staging additionally can include um, other uh, imaging studies such as um, CT, MRI, and PET. And the staging rules um, to be um, uh, uniform across uh, different settings don't allow the um, inclusion of things like a PET, PET scan. However, the, the purpose of these other tests is to um, determine if the disease has spread so that you can actually figure out what your, what your treatment is going to be. Is it best to have surgery or is it best to have radiation or, or perhaps a combination of therapies? Um, so the staging in brief is a clinical as opposed to a surgical, and there are only certain tests allowed on a national and international basis. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question for our online participants. Um, uh, for Dr. Einstein, can Gardasil prevent HPV-related cancers if given after exposure to HPV or after childhood? No, it's an excellent uh, question. Um, we, we know, you know, Gardasil, the current uh, marketed uh, variety, not the initial Gardasil, um, it really ha could, could, could prevent nine types, and really that has been revolutionary in terms of preventing cervical cancer. Uh, with primary prevention with vaccines and secondary prevention with screening, we could really prevent a lot of cervical cancer. Um, that said, um, uh, if, if somebody has, an individual has already been exposed to an HPV type, we know that there is a, a limited role um, of Gardasil in that, but we also know that Gardasil will help protect that individual from all the other types. It, it is um, impossible for someone to be infected with nine types of HPV. That has not happened, as far as I know. And uh, and so we know that Gardasil most certainly is protective for the other types. And if somebody has already been infected with one of the types, certainly that individual will glean benefit from Gardasil with other types. So we are very liberal about offering that to our patients, even if they've had a prior exam. But very importantly, for you know, and this is the shared decision-making conversation that I have with my patients, very importantly, it's, uh, it's important that the patient continues to get secondary prevention with screening because we do know that Gardasil has, has limited ability to influence the active HPV infection that, that someone might have. So we want to make sure that we're protecting that person from getting any, any element of disease in their cervix. Excellent. Thank you. And we have more questions about staging, um, Dr. Einstein. Um, what, um, what stage means what? What is so if you could go into more detail about the staging and its implications of... Sure. And Dr. Ronowitz had, had, had covered some of this, but let me get a little bit more specific, but not, not all the way in the micro world that we deal with as a clinician. The way I, I think about it is if it's contained in, in the cervix and if it's considered early, it's typically stage one, okay? But to Dr. Ronowitz's point, in the United States and developed areas of the world, there was a change in the staging um, the, this, all the staging, there's different types of staging. Um, we use the FIGO staging, and that was changed in 2018 for cervical cancer, where we could also add imaging um, as part of our staging, all right? So in addition to the clinical staging, like what Dr. Wanowitz was saying, we could actually identify what is someone that might be high risk, or someone might have what, it, what appears clinically to be stage one disease, but then we get a PET CT on them, and we identify that there might be, that there, there, there could be a node in the pelvis, and that changes the stage in addition to the fact that it changes the treatment that we do. So it's more in line with the treatments that we use. So, so the staging and the treatment sort of go hand in hand. And so as you would imagine, the higher stages, it, it's more extensive spread. So stage two disease extends outside the cervix, okay, and it could go up into the lower uterine segment of the uterus, and it could actually head into the vagina as well, the top part of the vagina. Stage three disease extends either out to the sidewall of the pelvis, okay? Sometimes it can actually obstruct the ureter, which is the tube that connects the kidney with the bladder, okay? 
It could go all the way down to the end of the vagina, uh, or it could go to other pelvic structures, and that's essentially stage three disease. Stage four disease means it's either invaded into local structures like the bladder or the, or the rectum, which are obviously, when you think about the cervix, what just above it is the bladder, right behind it is the rectum. Um, so if it bathes into those areas, and sometimes we'll pick it up, as Dr. Wonowitz mentioned, with an exam under anesthesia, and that's something that we oftentimes, if we're concerned about it, we will do an exam under anesthesia. Um, but also stage four disease includes if, if patients present with distant disease, either in the liver or the lungs or, or, or uh, outside of the pelvis. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, and we have a question of one of our um, telephone participants, um, uh, Dee Tamara, if we could take um, one of the questions, please. Okay. Your first response is from Stephanie S. Please go ahead. Hi, doctors. Thank you for your conference. Uh, I have a question. The latest uh, information has been at age 65 that no one needs a pap smear anymore. Do you espouse by that recommendation? Okay, thank you. That's a good question, Stephanie. Thank you, um, uh, Dr. Um, Einstein. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. It's an excellent question, and, and certainly something that a lot of our patients who are particularly postmenopausal, who, you know, as Dr. Curry mentioned early in our careers, we were doing annual PAPs, and as we've gotten away from them, um, from annual, and the reason why we've gotten away from annual is because we know that it doesn't pick up more cervical cancer by doing it more frequently. It just increases the chance that we have to do potentially unnecessary procedures like colposcopy. But to your point about the upper limit of age, part of this had to have to deal with when we actually see the peaks of cervical cancer. Some of the most recent data suggests that in people who are in the screening population, and, and I might add this does not apply to the diagnostic population or someone who has already had either cervical cancer or someone who has already had some sort of excisional procedure for precancer, those individuals, you're going to continue to do active surveillance on them after those procedures, even if it crosses over to the age of 65. We don't think of those individuals as screening. We think of that as active surveillance. But if someone has been normal all their life, they haven't had any abnormalities on their PAPs, which makes up the majority of, of, of patients with a cervix. Um, the what what the most recent this is being looked at right now whether or not that upper age limit might need to be extended. Okay, and it is certainly a, a big discussion in our in our current um, relook from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. But right now, the recommendation is to stop testing at age 65. Um, I, and I think that this is this is um, something that I think will be relooked at in the near future. So, Mark, this is Carolyn. Do you want to comment, though? My experience um, with some of my patients is, that are older than 65 uh, is they get new partners, and they come in with HPV. And so um, I think the, the screening limit at age 65 has to have some caveats, like, uh, you have the same partner that you're not uh, dating multiple men, or that you're using condoms. Um, so you want to you want to comment? Yeah, absolutely, Dr. Rono. You have a very important point. Let's we we have to individualize treatments for our patients. Um, and and what what the, what you had mentioned, where someone has an HPV positive test, that already puts someone in a different sort of risk category. Okay, when they have a persistent HPV, and, and that put, takes them out of screening. So, so we're not, you know, we'll continue to do screening or active surveillance on that patient. We do risk, we use risk to determine what we're going to do, where equal risks mean equal management. So if somebody has, shall we say, a, a diagnostic combination of HPV testing and or cytology that lends itself to colposity, we'll still do it even if that patient is over the age of 65. Um, and yes, I think it's important, and this is where you're getting at, I think, the practice of medicine. We know our patients, uh -huh. and it's important for you as right. a patient to share this information with your provider and say there might, you know, there's someone new, and guess what? My partner, my new partner, you know, is a widower, is a widower whose wife died of cervical cancer. Well, I'm obviously going to be screening that patient <laughs> even if she's over the age of 65 because, unfortunately, you know, she, he, she definitely is at risk for potentially getting what I would consider a very bad HPV type. So, you know, we certainly have yeah. to have those iterative conversations with, with patients and err on the side of patient safety, err on the side of doing things. But we also want to make sure that we're not overdoing it either. So there has some balance. Excellent. And uh, just two questions more, and then we'll 
conclude the questions just because I know we we want to stay with the time frame. Um, the, this question um, for uh, Dr. Ronta Runowitz: I didn't get my HPV vaccine when I was a kid. Can I still get get it now? So it depends on how old you are. Um, the and and Dr. Einstein is really an expert on this. Um, he's been really on the forefront of HPV research. And um, my take on it would be that there's a window of opportunity, and then after that, there's no data to support um, later in life HPV vaccine. But I'm curious to see what he is yeah, reporting. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Dr. Runowitz. I, uh, right now, the CDC recommended for what we are referring to as mid-adult women. Dr. Einstein did not make that term, so please don't throw virtual tomatoes at me, everyone. Okay, but the, up to age 45. <laughs> Up to age 45, you could get vaccinated, okay? Now, keep in mind that that's a CDC recommendation. It's a permissive vaccination, and that, that terminology in and of itself sometimes gets a little confusing to payers because sometimes they'll want to pay for it. Sometimes they won't want to pay for it. So it's important to have that the shared decision-making conversation with your doctor because that's also part of the recommendation. And most doctors, I think, are promoting it for their patients um, up to age 45, um, now, after the age of 45, there is no data to suggest that HIV vaccination is, is going to alter things. And quite frankly, part of it is because by age 45, the peak of cervical cancer, has, has we're on the other end of it. Okay, so we really want to try to use this early on. And our focus should be on, on young adolescents. Um, we really want to focus on 11- and 12-year-old boys and girls. Uh, because that's really where we're going to get the biggest benefit. But but one could get it up to age 45. But again, be careful and talk to your pair, talk to your doctor, and have that discussion. And, and, and something, oh, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. So, you know what, there's something else um, that I just want to say about the HPV. So not only does it prevent cervical cancer, but there's also a variety of other HPV-related cancers, head and neck cancers, for example. Um, so it, as as Dr. Einstein said, it's not only important for the girls for cervical, but for the boys um, to prevent spreading, but also um, for head and neck cancers, especially in smokers. Excellent point. Um, oh, here's a question. Um, what about men being vaccinated for HPV? Aren't they the ones who spread it pervasively because they're mostly asymptomatic? Dr. Einstein, I'll take that one. So, yes. Um, <laughs> first, first and foremost, we're... Let's, let's keep in mind, the, the, the vaccine is a cancer prevention vaccine, and I just want to build on the important point that Dr. Ronowitz made. Okay, there are HPV-associated cancers that affect both men and women, like head and neck, like anal cancer, like other types of cancers, not to mention the fact that general awards affects both men and women as well, okay? Um, frankly, the transmission between men and women um, is debatable, um, who's giving what to whom, and quite frankly, both are asymptomatic. Nobody gets symptoms from getting an HPV infection. That's very different than other viruses. If you get other viruses, you're, you're generally going to get sick. You're going to come down with something. If you get um, um, hepatitis, you're, you get sick, okay? If you get um, other types of viruses, you're going to get sick. You don't get sick with HPV, and I love it when patients come to me and, you know, I have a new infection. Oh, I've had pain. I've had discharge. I'm like, whoa, 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 time out. That's not due to HPV, but we got to look into that too, okay? And that's really important. But getting back to this with boys, so we did the trials, and the trials actually showed that we actually prevent disease. We actually prevent cancer in men, all right? This is why we're doing it. It particularly um, affects men who have sex with men, and, and, but it also affects all men. And, yes, to Dr. Ronald's point, we want to prevent that spread to maybe unvaccinated women as well, but we also want to prevent cancer in men. And that's that's why we're 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 liberally offering it to both boys and girls. Excellent. I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I want to thank also our participants for really asking such great questions. I know we could go on for another hour or two, but I realized we had said this would be an hour program, and so I want to kind of try to stay to the time frame. So I want to thank again our speakers and both and our participants as well. It's an enormous. This is, you know, we've done this program before, but this has been really a phenomenal program. I have to say, the synchrony between our speakers and our participants' questions really fantastic. That's all I can say. <laughs> and now I do want to get back to all of you who have questions yet that you've asked. So for those of you who've either asked a question have a question that you've yet to ask, or um, are thinking of a question you'd like to ask. We want you to go back to your treating health care team. Of course, they know you the best. 
and they're the ones that you really want to, um, they have your whole medical history. So whatever you've heard today, these are general concepts. You know, general, it's a, they're in, they're, to make you more informed when you ask questions of your healthcare team. But in terms of you specifically, go back to your treating healthcare team. That's really very important for um, the decisions around your care and treatment. Um, that's really important. And um, and for those of you who, um, even that applies to both those, those who have asked a question and those who have, have a question that you wish to ask. Again, or will want to think of a question. We also, at the end of the program today, you will be getting um, a SurveyMonkey evaluation. In that evaluation, you'll be getting resources that you can contact that are credible to get additional information. Um, but we also will be, um, and any information that was given out during the program that was a resource or a website, we'll give that to you as well. Um, but um, so that's that's important for you to know as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want you to also know that you're not alone in coping with cervical cancer or any type of cancer. I want you to know that you're now part of a really large community of support. There are many, many organizations in addition to cancer care that can help you. Um, obviously, we've given you information about contacting cancer care. If we can't, if we don't have the solution, we'll connect you with an organization that does. So again, I want to thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.